Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Beat Your Addiction with John Giordano. I'm your co-host, Scott Jones. I want to thank everybody for joining us. we got a great show for you today. But before we get started, just a quick reminder that uh, if you like this program, you want to subscribe to it and hit the notification bell so you know when our next shows are coming out. And, of course, share it with your friends and colleagues. Uh, this is all about getting a good message out there. And uh, if you want any more information about John Giordano or to contact him, you can go right to johnjgiordano.com. And all of his information is right there, including uh, his publications and uh, his contact information. Right, John? Uh, right. It's John, the letter J, Giordano.com. But some people say J-A-Y, so. Well, yeah, yeah. You know, you probably should grab that, too, just in case. <laughs> you know? you're right. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, uh, so johnjgiordano.com. But again, this is Beat Your Addiction, and uh, I want to thank everybody for joining us. And uh, John, uh, first of all, it's good to see you, my friend, and uh, hope all is well with you and your family. Everything's going really well. Thank you. Good, good. And I want to introduce our guest, who's a very special guest. Uh, this is somebody that John has been working with for, I want to let him talk about the relationship, because he's always had such admiration and respect for this uh, colleague and friend of his. And uh, somebody that I've had the pleasure of meeting several times and certainly have followed, followed her work. This is doc, Dr. Deborah Mash, and she's with Demorex. And uh, I'll let them explain what that, all that is, but she is a CEO and founder of Demorex. And um, John, uh, Dr. Mash, take it away. All right. It's just, I'm so, it's so great to have you on. And people need to know what's going on in, with plant medicine, like Ibogaine. And that's what this is going to be. We're going to be talking about Ibogaine. It's, a, I, it's an African medicine that's a, it's a magical substance that helps people get detox within 24 hours. Uh, I'm going to let Dr. Mash talk about all that. And uh, we've been working together, how long? 20 years at least? Deborah? I, think it's, I think it's longer than that, John. Probably longer. We're as old as dirt. <laughs> um, why don't you tell us all about what's going on and where you're at and how it's progressing? Well, I, I, I want to thank you first, John, for uh, inviting me to, to discuss Ibogaine today with you and your, and your viewers and also to uh, thank you publicly for your friendship and to acknowledge the important contributions that you have made to Ibogaine research and to helping to advance this drug as a substance to help patients make a transition to sobriety. Ibogaine has a, a long history and my journey with it uh, goes back before 1993 when I first uh, went up to the FDA and asked them for permission to test Ibogaine in humans. And actually, John, it was after we were getting publicity with the announcement that the FDA had approved our clinical trial that you first contacted me right. to ask me if you could get involved and if you could learn more about this. And again, that, that emphasizes how you have always been cutting edge and looking at ways to help patients who suffer from drug and alcohol dependence, whether it's doing holistic type of medicine, whether it's using vitamins and nutrients and helping to restore body function. And in this case, it was the idea that a psychedelic medicine could be a transformative way to help patients break their intractable cycle of, of abuse. 
Yeah, it's, it's an addiction interrupter, I believe we call it. Uh, it's amazing watching the clients come come to the island of St. Kitts. That's where we used to do our detox because it is considered a Schedule One drug, and uh, it wasn't yet available in the United States. So we went to St. Kitts, and Dr. Mesh had a wonderful, wonderful detox center. And what made it really good is the priority was that it'll be safe, done in a, in a medical context. And that is the most important thing is safety. And that's what she was concerned about. And that's what she did. And that's how it worked. And we helped so many people. Uh, they came in uh, the worst of the worst because they've tried everything else. And then they finally went to Dr. Nash. And here they are. And all of a sudden, after 24 hours, they come out and it's like a whole different person. You go, this can't be the same person. You know, and uh, I'll let Dr. I'll, I'll let Deborah, you talk about you know, the work. I mean, she's incredible. She works so hard. Uh, she cares about the client. It's not about money. It's about helping the human race. And that's what we're all about here. You know, money's one thing. It's not bad to make money. I'm not saying that's not good, but you have to have a balance in life. Otherwise, it isn't any good. So, Deb, tell us more about what's going on. Actually, actually, John, I, I always enjoy hearing you talk about the way the patients look because you you work with so many thousands, thousands of people. So your perception, your, your witnessing to what we saw in St. Kitts is, is always very reinforcing to me because it was very important that others got to see what we were doing down there. And I, and I think for your listeners, you know, the St. Kitts experience, the reason that we ended up in St. Kitts was, you mentioned money, was because I couldn't fund this. Originally, when the FDA approved us to work with Ibogaine, the plan was that we would run a clinical phase one safety and pharmacokinetic study at the University of Miami at the medical school where I was on the faculty for many, many years. And when we got the FDA permission to go, we got it first in 1993, and then again, we got the full green light from the FDA in 1995, this was an amazing uh, accomplishment, truly, because very few uh, investigators, very few academic investigators, doctors, and universities were had an, a DEA license to work with Schedule One drugs. That was a stumbling block, and then to have FDA permission to go forward with it, there were only a handful of people, and. Those of us working at the university in Miami were the first, and as I sit here today, the only people to ever get FDA permission to work with Ibogaine in the United States. And there have been few protocols that have advanced in any country outside the United States. So when we couldn't fund it, and remember the, the patents, the original patents for Ibogaine were held by the late Howard Lutzoff. So Mr. Lutzoff was the one who had the drug supply. He also held the intellectual property. In order to develop a drug through the FDA or any regulatory agency for that matter, can be many tens, if not a hundred million dollars to get through all the stages of regulatory approval. So here we were, we had FDA permission to go forward but we did not have the money to pay for the clinical trial. 
And I, I remember the day when I knew that we weren't going to get money from, from government because I went to the National Institute on Drug Abuse to ask them to fund the trial. And Mr. Lotsoff couldn't fund the trial. So we were all dressed up, ready to go, assembled a wonderful collaborative team of, of people like yourself, John, uh, you know, counselors, addiction therapists, addiction medicine physicians, psychiatrists. We had collaborators around the United States, not only at the University of Miami. So we were really excited to, you know, to get going, to get in the clinic and to finally test and to be able to show the regulators and also show key opinion leaders that this drug held promise. But as you mentioned, we needed to know, understand the safety of the molecule. We needed to understand that any risk for Ibogaine, that the benefits would outweigh any potential problem. We, we had to demonstrate that. So there really wasn't a lot of information and we were starting from scratch. Now, when we went to St. Kitts, the reason that I went to St. Kitts was the beginning of my entrepreneurial days, right? Because I did what is called a family and friend round and went and raised money from families and friends, spoke to the university, told them I wanted to do this. And John and I had the opportunity to work with a, very, a, a wonderful psychiatrist by the name of Frank Urban. And Dr. Urban, who was in St. Kitts and who I had worked with on other NIH funded projects, was willing to step in and be a clinical director. I'm not a medical doctor, so we needed to have a clinician at the top. And Dr. Urban went to government with us, and we got permission from the government of St. Kitts to bring Ibogaine into the country and to set up a treatment center. So it was really an R&D. And John, you were, not, you were part of that cutting edge again, uh, because we were learning the safety, the medical safety, we had sort of, we knew what the FDA wanted to see and we knew what we had promised the ethics review committees at the university and our discussions with our collaborators at the FDA. We knew what they wanted to see. So we had the kind of medical model mapped out. But in terms of this as a treatment intervention for people in uh, wanting to detoxify from cocaine or opioids or other drugs and making that transition and developing an aftercare is where your expertise, John, came in, helping to prepare the patients before I began and then helping them make that transition. You know, what was really cool with Dr. Irving, he was doing the monkey studies on the island. And uh, it was really interesting about, uh, they were alcoholic monkeys. So they were showing them with uh, families of monkeys together, how they respond and then, uh, they would have uh, different levers, uh, one for water and one for uh, uh, alcohol and how they would uh, do that. And when they had uh, groups of people together, they wouldn't go towards the alcohol so much. R a real interesting study. And we were very fortunate and blessed to have you and Dr. Irving on as well. And uh, what, what people don't understand is that, look, there's some talk about, well, people died on Ivy Game. Well, look, let me explain something to my audience, first of all. People die in detox, okay? People die when, when it's, they don't have any safety protocols. They have a lot of people um, doing Ibogaine in the underground. Now, they mean well. They really want to help people. They understand that. But it goes beyond that. When you don't do things in a medical procedure and you don't do them properly, 
yes, people can't get, people can't die. And that's with any medication. So it has to have a policy, it has to have a procedure and done by medical professionals. That is paramount. You know, you can't just give somebody Ibogaine, put them in a hotel room and say, I'll see you in the morning. Because there's certain drugs that interact with Ibogaine, like, like benzodiazepines and, and things like that. And, you know, you, you got to know what you're doing. And Debbie, you want to talk a little bit about that, the rule outs, and uh, especially with people that have uh, disassociative uh, diseases and uh, schizophrenia and things like that, that they're not good candidates for Ibogaine. Yes, as with any kind of medical intervention, you need to have proper medical clearances. And of course, people, um, you raise a very important point, John, is that when, you know, we closed St. Kitts and moved back into the United States, and my plan at the time was to uh, develop possibly the metabolite of Ibogaine, nor Ibogaine, which we haven't talked about on, on, on this interview today, but you know, you have to be guided by the science behind the molecule and you have to understand the limitations of the intervention. That's why you do clinical trials. Right. But Ibogaine has gone to the underground and there is a vast underground experiment of Ibogaine ongoing today. People, as John said, will go into unsafe settings some more unsafe than others. And there have been 32 deaths reported in the medical literature that had been attributed to be related to Ibogaine. Now, John raises another very important point in reviewing those deaths. Often there were other issues. People had sick hearts. People took other drugs. John mentioned the drug-drug interaction. Ibogaine is, undergoes a metabolic clearance that is very complicated. Ibogaine is handled by the body differently depending on the genetics of a person. So you might be a fast metabolizer or you might be a poor metabolizer. So this is one aspect of Ibogaine that needs to be very well controlled. Drug-drug interactions, yes, very important because Ibogaine may cause what is referred to as QT prolongation. This is a change in the way the heart behaves. And there are, there are many drugs that have QT, that may be QT prolongers that have been approved for use. One good example in this context is methadone. Methadone causes QT prolongation. This is known. Yet methadone is used by millions of people in the U.S. and elsewhere. And so it can be given safely. So we needed to understand the safety of the molecule. We needed to understand how the body metabolized the molecule. And we needed to understand the concentration of Ibogaine in the blood so we could relate it to the dose and the safety for alcoholic patients, for opioid dependents, for cocaine abusers. And that's another uh, good point John made, is that people who come in who have been abusing hard drugs and alcohol have all kinds of things going on. They're nutritionally compromised, which means that they're, 
their magnesium levels, their calcium levels, their potassium levels in the blood may be altered. They may have damaged their heart. If your heart is not healthy, you are not a candidate for Ibogaine. You need to have a, cardi a cardiac clearance before you take the drug. And that's well, what we and well, that's you know what, what was in, that you know what was interesting the way you went about it. We had to put a heart monitor on them. It was just see an EKG is just a snapshot of what's going on in the heart at that moment in time. But right. to really get an understanding of what's going on, how the heart is functioning, we did a heart monitor for twenty four hours, and then we sent it out, and then we got the results back from the lab, and we checked what's on board, what kind of drugs are on board. We, we also checked what other things are going on with that patient that needs to be addressed. And then we looked at a psychological profile to make sure that they didn't have any rule outs with Ibogaine. See, that's the proper way to do it. And now when we went to St. Kitts, okay, we did it again, checking them out and making sure that they were a good candidate for Ibogaine. Because we want this is the most one of the most important African medicines, I believe, in the century. And the work that Dr. Mash is doing is incredible. But you see, most people don't know about Ibogaine. They have um, anecdotal information that doesn't match up to what's really going on. They, it's first of all, it's not a magic bullet. That's number one. Uh, number two, it, it, it is an addiction interrupter and it gets people that the whole mind changes the way they come out. It's amazing what happens with Ibogaine. My son had anxiety and depression. I took him for Ibogaine. And that's when I did it with him. And it's, I, I can't even say more about it, that it's, it's an incredible process. It's not a, it's a magic bullet. It's not a treatment per se that now you do it, you're done. Okay. It's a beginning, but a good beginning. Not just where people go to detox to come out. It's I don't even know why they call it detox centers. They should be calling stabilization units because detox means to detoxify, not put other drugs in, in its place. So this medication and, and with Dr. Mash, well, you could talk about noroibogaine, which is a molecule that is placed in the neural uh, receptor, the opioid receptor sites that keeps them from cravings and keeps them. Uh, I mean, just moving along and wanting to get help. I could talk forever. You, you go talk. Well, <laughs> again, you know, I enjoy listening to you talk about it because when I remember, I can, I can visualize the two of us, uh, you know, going to pick up our patients at the airport when they would come in. Oh and they would God. come to us, John, so sick. And uh, they, we would watch the American Eagle planes land and we would be on the second floor watching them walk off the plane. And we could, even though we didn't have pictures of some of our patients who were coming in from different parts of the United States or Europe, Canada, we could identify our people. <laughs> oh, without they, a doubt. They looked very bad. I was writing know? herd. It was like quite interesting. Imagine what one addict can do to a whole family. We had like sometimes 14 addicts keeping corralled and make sure that they're not going off, you know. Yeah, no, they, they working, working with the groups and that, and, and that was the excitement, I think. You know, I, I was over the, the, the medical team and working with the medical doctors and our visiting doctors and our nurses and making sure that the patients got through the Ibogaine detoxification. But the real magic that we saw in St. Kitts was with our counseling staff. And I, I would, and I 
didn't always, in fact, rarely got involved in the therapeutic environment that John and the other counselors created for these people. But that's where the magic really began. And, and John, again, describes this well, because people would come in, you know, we like to say pre-contemplative, contemplative, ready for change, right? The Prochaska uh, assessment scale. Our people came in, and as John pointed out, these are people who were at the, at the end of the road. They had detoxed so many different times. They tried to get clean and sober again and again, relapse rates really high, banging back a lot of hard drugs for many, many years, wreckage in their lives, wreckage in their families. I mean, this was kind of the end of the road for many of our people. Yeah, it, it, was, um, it was the last, you know, hurrah for everybody. And it was kind of uh, interesting working with that type of population because, you know, they would come in and they would hide drugs. And my job also was to make sure that we got the drugs that they hid, right? We, I get to that little funny story. I says, look, does anybody have a dog on the island? They said, well, one of the nurses says, yeah. I said, okay, that's our new drug dog. So the nurse says, well, the dog doesn't know about drugs. I said, don't worry about it. So we had them first come in, and I had, I had the dog. I told all the clients that if you have drugs on you, okay, you catch that, you're going to wind up in jail in St. Kitts, and you're not going to like it. So I kind of scared them that way because it was true. They can, they can die with this stuff if they do drugs that we don't know about. So I had the dog walk around. The dog picked his leg up. I had to jerk him before he peed on the suitcases. <laughs> Okay, so one of the kids, when the dog would wear the luggage, I got drugs, I got drugs on me, and it's handed me the, handed us the drugs. The nurses had to run into the bathroom; they were peeing in their pants, they were crying so hard. So these are some of the things we had on the island that you know we did. That was kind of fun in a way. They put a goat. Remember, they put a goat in my room. We washed a lot of, we flushed a lot of drugs. Oh my God. There's no doubt about that. And they were, they yeah. hid it in some unique places. Unique I mean, one had it in the cable in his laptop that he brought. I mean, I mean, it's like wild how the engineer. Well, that's why you were, you were so good at your job, John. I mean, let's face it. I mean, I really, I, I, you know, we, we did not want them. We needed to find the drugs. Yep. The illicit drugs and the prescription drugs. We didn't want any prescription pills down there. We needed uh -uh. everything to go. And so, and people traveled with drugs. I mean, you know, it's what you Well, do. you know, that's what happens with They were detox. scared. They were scared. Yeah. They didn't They're want scared to that it's not going to work. And they were afraid and they want to do their last hurrah. And, and that's what, that's standard for addicts. Yes, yes. You know, yes. Um, but it was really cool. What, why don't we talk about the process that you did on the island? And, you know, how we, 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 we talked about some of it, about the monitoring and the, the medical component, but the actual process, like, you know, like I know what we did with the counseling, we prepared them to go into Ibogaine. Very and important. I, yeah, no, guys, very important. The, the pre-dose pre, pre stabilization, so the pre-Ibogaine stabilization phase was very important. And, um I, I used to I used to always say to them, you know, two things, purity of intention, go with the flow. Right. Intent is, is key. Setting the intention. And and uh, in fact, John, I, I am going to ask you to speak to speak about this, not not only on this call, but um, I'm going to invite you to participate in something with us, because I mean, if you're going to design the 
are, you know, and I began treatment protocol, exactly what John is mentioning now is extremely important. You want to prepare the patients for that transformative journey. And we did that. We did that in St. Kitts. You did that for us. We did that together. When they, so they, they did that, they began the process. But I, I remember in the council, I tell this story all the time, but in the counseling center, John, uh, we had a unit that was the counseling unit. And John and the other counselors would meet individually and in groups with our with our our group setting. And they would put up on the wall of the unit the names of the clients, and then they would start to fill in what they were going to do as part of their aftercare plan. And the thing that really struck me, and even though I even though I saw it many times, every time I saw it, I was just struck by this. Before I began, there would be their name and maybe one thing written on there. After I began, the whole thing would fill up. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it was insane, right? I mean, you yeah. and I, I, I couldn't believe it. I'd walk in the counseling unit and I'd look and I'd look and I was like, my God, what happened here? So you set the, you know, purity of intention. Don't be afraid. Go with the flow. We're going to take care of you in this setting. You're going to be safe. And then when they, they went you know, quiet, people stay under the eye, begin their visual, the visions, which is sort of like they describe as a life review, or maybe spiritual content. I remember, uh, John, I think it was one of the rounds that you were on with us where I learned it from you in the group that some of the patients said that this was like a fourth step, completing right. the moral inventory. And so all these pages would fill up. So they, we fostered that experience in the clinic. We fostered the Ibogaine journey, the life review, the moral inventory. And then out the clinic, they would come. The next day they would rest. And then the work with the therapists began. Yeah, but you know what we did, which was really the safety protocols also, what we did is after we, we helped them with their intent to put everything in the foreground of their mind, so they're thinking about that as they go into their journey, we also we put them in a, in a bed. We had a nurse by their bed. We had an IV in their arm in case there was any kind of an event that occurred. We had a heart monitor on them to make sure everything is functioning properly while they're under the IV game. And then we would give them a test dose to see how they tolerated. So within... 45 minutes, if they tolerated it properly, then we would give them a full dose. And like any other detox, we had a nurse right by their bed in that room. And I mean, the safety protocols were paramount. So after that, then what we would do, we would, they would come out, they would get a little rest, and then we would debrief them on what my job was to see what they saw in their journey and help them to understand what that may mean for their life. And they would have what is known as a cathartic experience and a resolution on these different traumas that they had throughout their whole life. And that gave them a one-up in recovery. Problem what we had was everybody thought they were well. <laughs> so, you know, we had to convince them that, no, 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 this is this a beginning, a foundation to move forward. You're not well. You, you've been sick for many, many years. One day, not going to make it. But what's yeah. cool about Ibogaine is, is that opioids, even methadone, um, 
24 hours? Nobody believed that. We had people, we had doctors from all over the world come over there with their clients. They couldn't believe it. They heard it. They wanted to see it themselves. Yes. And, we you know, couldn't believe it. We couldn't believe it either. Remember? I mean, I, I don't you weren't with me on the very first rounds, but you were there shortly afterwards. The the first few rounds that we did, I'll go to the grave with. And I, I can remember Dr. Irvin, who uh, was, you know, classic, uh, you know, if you if you had to pick a psychiatrist, you know, cast him in a role in a Hollywood movie, that would be Dr. Irvin, you know, the big, tall psychiatrist, you know, very controlled behaviorally with a big beard and the glasses. And Dr. Irvin, I can remember after the second round that we did, because we had the methadone patients on the second round, and Dr. Irvin came in to me, he put his glasses on, slid them down on his nose, and he looked at me and he said, well, Deborah, it blocks opioid withdrawals. And he had heard about Ibogaine, you know, prior to us doing it in St. Kitts. And uh, there he was, the true believer. And that was all of us because all of us were witness to this. We saw the rapid detoxification. We saw the rapid improvement in mood, the antidepressant effects of the drug, and we saw the diminished cravings and desire to use. So I always say people could jump the fence and, and get out of there and go and, and, and score dope. They could have left and they didn't, they stayed. And they were motivated, and they were motivated to work with you, John. Right. They they had a, a, a their whole personality seemed to take a flip. <laughs> I mean, it was amazing to me. Now you know, there's still a, a lot of work that has to be done. We know that, okay. Yes. But you know, I, I work in a the South Beach Detox right now. Wonderful place that people really care about their clients, but I look at their clients detoxing and I look what our clients were detoxing. It's night and day. You know, I, I wish we could put Ibogaine into the United States, okay, to detox people because we're really detoxing them. And it's a spiritual medication. It's not just a drug. You know, they use it for a rite of, the Weedy tribe, they use it for a rite of passage. So Chemical mitzvah is what I used to call it. Right, and it's like it goes into your soul. And you meet what we call Mother Iboga. And she, you know, it's a beginning journey. It gives you the knowledge, okay, for the most part, and how to move forward in one's life. But knowledge is power, but without action is worthless. So it's like treatment or anything else. We can help you, give you a, a map, okay, of guide what's, what to do with your life to help you, you know, become a human being again. But you got to do the work. You got to do the work, and one, do of, the work, one of my favorite, one of my favorite clients once told us, and the way he he put it was, "Ibogaine is the high dive of recovery. You're going to get farther into the pool, but you still got to swim when you hit the water." That's right. And what John, you you said something very very fundamental, and that is you've got to convert the knowledge into action. Without that, you don't have anything. And they, you need they, the Ibogaine shows them, gives them, and working with a therapist, it's doubled down and the efficacy is better. So they, 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 have, they have a roadmap, but if they don't put it into practice, if that doesn't translate into action, that they, they will fail. And this is what will lead them back into relapse. 
Well, what's amazing at this time, it's the time of birthing for Ibogaine, I believe. You know, now people are looking at plant medicine like psilocybin, uh, ayahuasca, and things like that. And they're, noted, they're seeing that it really can help people. You know, the other medications that we use and the SSRIs and Mayo inhibitors and all that stuff. Okay, we're, I'm not saying poo-poo and that, but what I am saying is this. Okay, they were never meant for long-term use. They were meant for short-term intervention. And all of a sudden, now the long-term use, and they don't really have, I don't believe, too much uh, research on cross-pollination. In other words, using different medications to accomplish the same results that you want because the body gets used to this stuff and yes. it starts to diminish the power of the medication. So they have to use something else to counteract that. I mean, it's like... Uh, on and on. They're educated guesses. They're not really scientific guesses. Okay, so... I think that's I, right. That's right, John, is that, you know, I've spent my life as a neuroscientist, neuropharmacologist, and studying the human brain after death. And I've examined the brains of, you know, literally hundreds of people, hundreds and hundreds of people who have died from drug-related deaths. So have been abusing cocaine, hardcore opioids more recently. We, we have several NIH grants that I'm participating in, um, working with some, some exceptional investigators looking for genetic risk and how drugs alter the brain and be, ultimately behavior. The excitement about the psychedelic medicines for me as a neuroscientist is precisely this idea that you have a window of neuroplasticity that it actually may be not only bringing about a rapid reset to the neurochemistry of the brain, unlike chronic dosing with the SSRIs, as you mentioned, but you also are turning on the, those synaptic pathways in the brain that can help heal the brain. And when you abuse drugs long-term, you hurt your brain. You change your brain. <laughs> You, you know, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of changes that we were able to characterize in the brain, not only at the level of the cell and the cell membrane, but also all the way at the level of the DNA. I mean, there's evidence that drugs, especially heroin and, and other opiates, actually hijack the DNA, cause changes at the level of the DNA within the cell. So, you know, we have new techniques now where scientists can actually profile not only the changes in gene expression, but also changes in the DNA at the epigenetic level in the single cell itself. This is very exciting. Well, these psychedelic medicines, whether it's psilocybin for depression or MDMA for PTSD or Ibogaine as a detoxification from hard drugs like heroin, bring about that change, this reset, the neurochemical reset and the question is, how long does that last? And you know, what is that window of synaptic plasticity? And how do we work with excellent therapists such as you, yourself, John, to help patients to make that long-term transition? Well, what we noticed was when they brought them back to uh, treatment, this is not for everybody. I'm not saying it works for everybody perfectly. I mean, nothing works 100% anyway. But yeah, for the most part, it's unbelievable. And what we noticed is that they, their cravings, whether, whether, like you said earlier, whether they were fast metabolizers, slow metabolizers, how their liver was functioning, really set the stage for how long that these cravings would last. Because Ibogaine 
which turns into norovirus, blocks the opioid receptor sites, and it's different for everybody because we're all different human beings. So we all have a different footprint. So it was for anywhere from 30 to maybe 90 days that they didn't have any cravings. And that's unbelievable. Uh, because addicts, as soon as they come out of detox, they're looking to get high. Guys, we're, get, we're getting close to the end of the show here. And I wanted to get something out there, if you don't mind, uh, for, for both of you, Dr. and John. Um, you, you've separated this from what people know about methadone and suboxone and subutex and sublocate and all the things that kind of poison the pool of detox, I think. Um, and you've separated this and you've, you've shown them through your conversation that this is something that deserves a real look. Why all the pushback? Oh, I, get I mean, I, I think that's the, the question people are saying, because when you look up Ibogaine, you get a lot of bad press before you get to read the good stuff. Why mm-hmm. is there so much pushback on this? You want to say, uh, I, I know why, but you want to tell me you want no, to talk? I, I think there's multiple. I think I'll be curious to hear what John, we'll let John weigh in on this, but. Well, let's look at it this way. Pharmaceutical it, companies cannot patent a bush, a plant. They can't patent that. Well, Demerex has some intellectual property, John. So they're, uh-huh. they're, 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 we have an IP strategy and obviously um, Mother Nature's natural products um, you know, John's right. I mean, you have to, to, in order to patent a molecule, if you're going to spend, let's put it this way, if you're going to spend uh, all those many millions to get through uh, regulatory approval in Europe, US, Canada, or elsewhere, you have to have some kind of rate of return on investment. Yeah, well, see, so in, in big, another- pharma, big pharma can make money on Suboxone. If you, when I started Demrex to develop Ibogaine and originally to develop Noribogaine, and when I came back in in 2017, my plan was to bring both molecules back online, to bring right. Ibogaine online. We were at the height of the, of the opioid deaths in the United States, and I couldn't, I couldn't stand it anymore. And I, I looked at myself and said, it's time to finish what you started. And that's when I stepped back into Demerex. But originally we thought we would work with the metabolite precisely because we had the intellectual property, the IP around the active metabolite of Ibogaine. So we had a novelty and inventive step. It costs money, okay? So I think um, there is a big barrier because of the money. I think the DEA Schedule One also is a roadblock for many academic investigators to get involved. I think there are, are those, uh, whether, you know, in the, in the buprenorphine and in the methadone industry that would not like to see Ibogaine come forward. Uh-uh. It's, just, it's just a hunch, all right? And when you look at, when you look at, uh, when I started Demerix in 2010 with my partners, nor I, we looked at some, uh, buprenorphine was the volume of sales in the United States were about under 300 million. Today, it's over 3 billion. Wow. So this is a very big uptick and key opinion leaders, more and more people are being moved on to substitution therapy, medication assisted therapy with buprenorphine. And indeed it's saved it saves lives and it's helped many people. But again, are you replacing one addiction to an illicit drug 
with another opioid, a prescribed medicine, but you're not clean. Well, you're you know, still dependent on an opioid. What's interesting is this: what people don't understand, it's another opioid. It's an opioid, okay, replacing an opiate. So you, you know, you're still doing opiates. And in 19, the early 1900s, we had a morphine epidemic in this country. So all the scientists and the doctors and all the regulators is that, oh, we can do this. And we know what this was? Heroin. Now they were trying to help people with heroin to get off of, uh, I mean, it's just like a joke. But, you know, buprenorphine now, what's happening is that they're putting what they don't realize. We did a, a research paper on this with Dr. Blum. He's the geneticist who found the addiction gene. And what we found out is long-term use of, of uh, Suboxone or buprenorphine, okay, creates, it, it blocks dopamine. And people will start walking around like a zombie. You know, they don't have any sexual desires. That nothing, nothing means anything anymore. So you're talking about managed addiction. You're not talking about managed recovery. You're basically talking about managed addiction right. with these things. Right. And, and that's the sad part. And Ibogaine doesn't do that. Right. Ibogaine, we can get that in the United States, but we're going to notice a big difference in what's happening with, with clients as far as the relapse rate. So... Tune in for us to do maybe possibly another one to go more in depth about what we're talking about. And I hope the pharmaceutical companies pick it up, you know? No, so I, I, you know, with our, with our partners at Thai, who we, we I, I will let the listeners know the last comment, the good news to this story is that we have been granted permission to test Ibogaine in what is called a, a phase one, two design where we're going to demonstrate the safety parameters for the regulators in a dose escalation arm. And then we're going to take that top dose and we're going to demonstrate what John and I saw with our own eyes. We were going to replicate that in, a, in, a, in what's called a good clinical practice trial in patients seeking to detoxify from opioids. So, John, um, we're going to invite you to be part of that effort as well. And um, I look forward to the next chapter of our journey with I. Absolutely. Doctor, that's a big deal because they weren't even allowing uh, the entertaining clinical trials in the U.S. And now you're taking those step first steps. And congratulations for all your hard work that that's happening now. Thank you. Thank you for that. That means, that means a lot to me. I appreciate yep. it. If there are people listening who want to learn more, they can certainly go to your website, which is demorex.com. It's on the screen. People can go there. But if somebody wants to, um, I mean, is there any way people can make some noise to help in the process here, uh, kind of get behind it, uh, petitions or anything like that? Are there people they should speak to? Should they speak to their doctor or their politician? Or are we not there yet? You know, it's, you make a really good point about, you know, citizen scientists, if you will. And I think there, you know, today it's very different than I think when we were growing up, John, where yeah. people are, are, are learning more about their general health. They're becoming more medically informed. And I do think it's important. I think through the recovery, uh, through the rooms, through the recovery movements, I think it's important to get the message out that Ibogaine needs to be given in a safe way that you don't take ibogaine in an unsafe setting buyer beware um and that you know we need to support 
uh, access to this drug molecule. I mean, one of the things that is very interesting that I've thought about is what's called patient's right to try. And I think once we get going and we can demonstrate in our study in, in the UK, bring that information back into the United States. And then I think, you know, family members and people who are desperate for this treatment will raise that awareness and we can get a buy-in from, from the regulators in the United States. I want to bring this molecule home. That's, I, want to do, I want to do this work here. I want to see this approved for use in the United States. Absolutely. Well, both of you, I mean, I know there's parents out there that, that lose sleep knowing that their children are, are t- taking Subutex, Suboxone, and all the others. And, uh, you know, just there's no change in their life other than who they're paying for their drugs at this point. And I think they're very happy that there are other things out there. And so uh, learn more. Uh, don't close yourself off to it. And um, guys, just keep up the good work. I think it's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity today. All right. Well, well I want to thank uh, Dr. Deborah Mash again with Demorex, the CEO and co-founder. Uh, contact information is on the screen. Um, and, uh, you know, again, we're not going to talk about how long you and her have been friends because I don't want to date you. It's a good date. You can date me. It'd be carbon dating at this so you point, have to John. talk to my wife about that. <laughs> carbon dating for both of us. <laughs> um, but uh, there's there's always there's something happening out there. Don't just accept uh, what what's mainstream right now. Always look for something else, and that's where we're going with the idol game right now. So, uh, guys, thank you very much. I want to thank everybody for joining us right here on Beat Your Addiction with John Giordano. Again, if you want more information about John and contact information, go to johnjgiordano.com. It's the initial J, johnjgiordano.com. And a reminder to everybody out there, if you like this show, please subscribe to the channel, uh, hit the notification bell, and share this with your friends. But for now, uh, I want to thank Dr. Denver Mash one more time for your time. And I know you're very busy, so thank you for joining us. Thank you both. Okay. We'll catch you next time right here on Beat Your Addiction. Bye.